the Cell Culture Dish podcast, using cell culture models of endocrine resistance to improve triple positive breast cancer treatment options. I'm Brandi Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Dr. Hilary Styers. I wanted to start today by asking you how you became interested in breast cancer research. I became interested in breast cancer research probably starting in college. So I actually was a behavioral neuroscience major at Lehigh University. um, And I took women in health courses and I was involved with their Colleges Against Cancer Club. And through those experiences, I really realized that there was um, an an important, um, there's a need for breast cancer research. So I decided to transition into doing breast cancer research through endocrinology. And a lot of cancers, which we'll get into in a minute, breast cancers are uh, driven by hormone signaling. So endocrinology is that's the study of hormone signaling. Um, and so that was a great transition for me uh, from the behavioral neuroscience side into breast cancer. And then at Georgetown, um, where I'm doing my postdoctoral fellowship currently in the tumor biology program, I've had opportunities to interact with patient advocates through the Georgetown Breast Cancer Advocates. And my, bre- my best friend was actually diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 28. So I'd only been here about six to eight months at, the t- at that time. And so I had personal experiences through breast cancer with that as well. So it was a culmination of a lot of things, but, um, you know, kind of all of it led me towards this this journey focusing on breast cancer. You talk about a little bit about the endocrine aspect of your research. Could you describe your current work in breast cancer research? Yeah, sure. So there are three types of breast cancer uh, that we mainly subdivide breast cancer into. You know, there are a lot of ways to subdivide breast cancer, but the the main way is to look at the histology. So looking at whether it has the estrogen receptor, the HER2 receptor, or neither of those. So we call that one triple triple negative. And so the estrogen receptor is a protein or, you know, a, a molecule within the cell that kind of tells the cell to grow when estrogen is around. And so in breast cancer, we see additional estrogen receptor than we would in a normal cell. So it's just an overexpression is the term that we say to describe that there's more estrogen receptor in a breast cancer cell than there is in a normal cell. Similarly, in HER2, we see more HER2. At this point, though, we're looking at, it's called amplification. So there's more HER2 because there's more DNA copies of the HER2, but it has a similar result, that there's more HER2. And this is another way that the cells signal to tell that the, the cells should divide and grow. And so the HER2 that's present also, you know, when there's more HER2, there's more growth that occurs there too. And the reason that we look at ER, estrogen receptor, or HER2 is because we have successful treatment for these receptors. So for the estrogen receptor, we have drugs like tamoxifen, which actually binds to the estrogen receptor, preventing the normal estrogen from binding. We have, tamo- we have aromatase inhibitors like anastrozole or arimidex, which prevent estrogen from being mace at all. So there's no estrogen around. So then the estrogen receptor can't tell the cell to grow. And then fulvestrin is the other one. And fulvestrin actually degrades the estrogen receptor. So it makes it so there's less estrogen receptor present and thus less growth. Similarly with HER2, we have targeted therapies. Um, and in this case, we have two that are um, antibody targets called Herceptin and Progetta. And both of these actually bind to the receptor, which is on the surface of the cell, and prevent the receptors from signaling to the cell to, to grow. Another one is Kedsyla, and there's been some you know recent interest in Kedsyla. There's a recent study published about a month ago that kind of showed that this might actually be a better drug to use than Herceptin, which is 
the current standard of care. Um, and that binds to the outside of the cell similarly to Herceptin. Um, it actually has Herceptin with it, but it's, it's also attached to a chemotherapeutic agent. So what happens there is that the Herceptin is able to bind to the HER2, and then the cell takes up that Herceptin that's attached to the chemotherapy, and then the chemotherapy is released within the cell, and the cell actually dies because of that. And so, you know, we look at um, a, a lot of groups and a lot of work has been done looking at estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, at HER2 positive breast cancer. But this middle place in between these uh, tumors that express both estrogen receptor and HER2 are a little bit less studied, um, and we're not really sure exactly what we should be doing there. That's really interesting. Thanks for that explanation, because I don't think that I ever fully really understood all the different uh, types of diagnosis with, with breast cancer, and that's really, your description made it uh, so much more clear for me. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what makes the triple uh, positive breast cancer difficult to treat, um, and then what is your goal in researching this particular diagnosis? Yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned, ER and HER2 are the two main targets that we go after. Um, we call it triple positive because we also actually look at PR, or the progesterone receptor. And so triple positive means that positive for estrogen receptor and or, you know, the triple positive is an interesting word, I think, as a, um, a basic research scientist. We kind of, you know, want to see that it's ER or PR and HER2. But regardless, it, the expression, you know, both um, sets of receptors are expressed. So we have ER and or progesterone receptor, and then also the HER2. And so ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncologists, recommends using HER2-targeted therapy if HER2 is present. But there's also some language within their guidelines that suggests, you know, if the patient also has a tumor that expresses estrogen receptor, that they can also add estrogen receptor-targeted therapies, and we're not really sure exactly when or which types that we should be using. And if we look at clinical trials where we treat with just the HER2-targeted therapy, so no estrogen receptor-targeted therapy at all, but if we treat with just the HER2-targeted therapy and we look at patients that express that are HER2-positive and express the estrogen receptors who are also estrogen receptor-positive versus those that are HER2-positive but do not have the estrogen receptor, those that do not express the estrogen receptor tend to do better um, on the HER2-targeted therapies. So for some reason, we're not really sure why, the estrogen receptor presence causes these tumors to have a worse prognosis. So our goal is to try to understand why is that estrogen receptor being there making these drugs not work as effectively? Additionally, when we start to use all of these different therapies, so if we're going after HER2 and ER, sometimes we see that there are worse side effects because we're using so many drugs. And so that's not the best idea for our patients. We want to ensure that we're targeting the most effective target, but that we're not causing them distress in addition. You know, cancer is already such a challenge. And so if we can find ways to target these triple positive tumors in a way that doesn't also increase the side effect burden without also increasing, you know, the efficacy, then that's going to be a beneficial thing for all of us. So generally, we don't, we don't understand what the presence of ER is doing there to make the cancer less responsive. And so we're kind of trying to understand why ER is present and what it's actually doing within these tumors. You know, I'm always interested, um, just based on what we cover on our website, about the culture used, the cell culture used. Could you tell me a little bit about how you use cell culture modeling to inform this research? 
That's a really great question because most of the work that I'm doing at this moment, which is a little bit in the early stages, is cell culture modeling. And so right now there are a few clinical trials that are looking to see how combining targeted therapy, so the ER and the HER2 at the same time, what kind of effects we see there. And so results from those trials will, will inform us. We call that bench to bedside. So the goal is to kind of use clinical data to inform what our, our bench work should look like. So actually, it's the other way around, bedside back to bench. So we kind of flip back and forth between bench and bedside. Um, and so what we do in the lab is we're taking cell, cell culture models that are cells that are breast cancer and express both the estrogen receptor and have amplification of HER2. And we use those to understand how different drug combinations will work within those cell types. We also model resistance in our lab. So one of the more common anti-estrogens that we use is an aromatase inhibitor. And so, like I mentioned earlier, an aromatase inhibitor actually blocks the production of estrogen. And estrogen is that important piece that the estrogen receptor needs to work to tell the cell to grow and divide. And so the aromatase, this is the enzyme that we have in the body. Uh, more often than not, it's found, um, or the, the highest levels of it are found within the ovaries. In breast cancer, it's also... Um, especially in postmenopausal women where the ovaries atrophy, we see aromatization or the process of aromatase converting into estrogen in fat tissue or in the adrenals. And so we actually don't have in a lot of cases, and it can happen sometimes, but more often than not, the epithelial cells themselves or the cells that cause the cancer, the cancer cells, don't express aromatase. So when we're modeling drug resistance to an aromatase inhibitor in the lab, we use a process called stripping or charcoal stripping. And so what that does is normally the cells are maintained in a media that's red, it contains phenol red, which has an estrogenic contaminant. And so the cells are able to grow um, in the presence of this estrogenic contaminant because it thinks it sees this estrogenic contaminant as estrogen and then it's able to grow. And so we model um, aromatase inhib uh, inhibition resistance by growing the cells in charcoal strip serum. And so what that does is it removes the, those estrogenic contaminants, and then the cells are basically growing in an estrogen-independent environment. Another way that we're doing it is we're using increasing doses of drug over time. So we'll take the cells that are normally very responsive. So they'll, um, when I do a growth assay, we'll see that if I treat the cells over time, that growth slows and the cells become apoptotic or they go through cell death. Um, when they're treated with the trastuzumab and pertuzumab, which are um, in the clinic called Herceptin and Progetta. And so I start with a very low concentration. So I know what concentration normally kills the cells in a dish. And so I start with a lower concentration and allow the cells to grow and continue to increase the dose over time so that the cells ultimately become resistant to the trastuzumab and pertuzumab or Herceptin Progetta. And so these are kind of two of the main ways that we model resistance. And then we can ask questions about you know, what, what are these cells doing in response to this resistance? How are they responding to other treatment types? How are they growing in the absence of estrogen or in the presence of these different drugs that we're adding? And it helps us to better understand, you know, how these, these cells might grow within a human patient. And then we can go back to the patient population and kind of, you know, that bench back to bedside uh, to ask these questions, either in an, in an animal model or um, actually in the clinic.
I just think it's so great how um, how far uh, cell culture modeling has come and how enabling it is for, for all different kinds of, of research. And so it's really interesting to hear you talk about how you use it specifically. Along those lines, I wanted to ask you a, another question. You were recently selected as a cell culture hero, and I wanted to find out what made you want to apply, and then what has your experience been with that program so far? Yeah, so I actually was... Asked, so I, <laughs> I'm big on Twitter, um, and you know I think it's a great way for communication and all that kind of stuff. And so I saw a friend of mine had gotten you know a, a Gibco um, cell culture, like it was a, a media bottle pin, and I kind of tweeted at her and I was like, I want one. How do I get one? And then one of um, the representatives from the cell culture heroes group direct messaged me on the side and kind of introduced me to the idea of working, you know, and 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 doing. A presentation and a webinar and getting spotlighted through the self culture heroes online. And so I decided to apply and I, you know, I looked into it and I very interested in science communication. And so I thought it was a great way for me to do a webinar about my research and get that information out there. So, you know, it's, it's a drive to, to work in my science communication is the, is the main reason. And my experience has been really great. I've really enjoyed getting to know Chelsea through it and, um, you know, and then it led me to this opportunity. So definitely continue to open open doors for me. So it's been really great. That's great. And yeah, I think it's a really great program because it does it does share a lot more about what people are working on in terms of, of their research, but also in terms of like we talked about what how are they how are they actually conducting the research and how are they using mm-hmm. some of these new and innovative tools to to conduct it. And I think that it's just a great way to communicate more, as you say, about uh, what's going on and, and helping uh, other researchers find um, new tools and innovations that can help them with their research. Um, along those lines, there's a big um, SciComm movement happening with scientists on social platforms, as you mentioned. And I was wondering why you think this is becoming so popular and how do you recommend that others leverage this trend for professional development? Yeah, so I'm very into SciComm. I think part of it um, probably has to do with our current, I would, I'm not even going to you know, blame the political climate. I think the media in general has kind of decided the information that they want to share. And so using science communication on social media has allowed for scientists to kind of control the narrative. So they can share the information that, you know, the work that they've been doing, we're very proud of what we do. And, and having this platform to actually share it has really improved the ability to do so. So I think Previously, you know, I don't think scientists have ever been, you know, holed up in their labs and not interested in sharing the information. It just hasn't really been available to them. And now that it is, I think it's been, you know, it's really taken off and people can see the benefit of sharing science. There are new platforms where people can do like previews of their research. So if they're submitting a publication, they can kind of put it up on this. Um, it's called BioR Archives. It's a website where they can put up their publication before it's actually been peer reviewed. So they can kind of like claim a stake in the ground and say, here's the information, you know, the research that I've done. And also let me share it with everybody because, you know, the process of getting a paper published can take up to a year. And so that information is out sooner and then collaborations can be established sooner. Um, You know, it allows for sharing information with the public. I kind of mentioned earlier my work with patient advocates and I've really enjoyed sharing information. A lot of the patient advocates I work with are very interested in how cancer works how their cancer works. 
in an effort to find better treatments for themselves, but also just to understand it. You know, it's part of their life. And so they're interested in understanding it at a different level. Um, and I think that for me personally, I use Twitter a lot. Twitter has been, I don't want to be dramatic about it, but, you know, career changing, life changing for me. I am moving towards work in policy at this point, And a lot of that has to do with my ability to communicate with people and the availability of doing that through Twitter. I also suggest opportunities like this, you know, reaching out to figure out if there are ways to do a podcast or do a webinar. You know, we talked about the cell culture heroes. Anyone can sign up for that. You know, it, there are a lot of ways and people just have to kind of take a minute, kind of look around to see what's there and jump in. Don't be scared. Just do it. I think, it, again, it's been life changing for me. So I highly recommend it to everyone I can talk to. It's really great. Yeah, and I think that's such a great point. And, you know, I was thinking the same thing when you were talking about it, about how long it takes for a journal publication to be published. And by the time it gets published, the work, as you mentioned, is already, you know, sort of nine to 12 months behind what you're doing now. So I think it is an excellent way to communicate real time. And as you say, I think um, scientists have always wanted to communicate, but there hasn't been this channel available necessarily. And so people relied on, you know, journal publications, conferences, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and then this, this just offers uh, another level that is just even more real time. And so I think mm -hmm. it's, it's a great opportunity and, and, and a very positive thing that has come out of social media when we think about we hear about a lot of, of negative aspects. I think mm -hmm. this is actually yep. a really positive thing and, and one of, you know, one, one real benefit of being able to communicate with others that are interested in the same things that you are um, so quickly well, and, and I, efficiently. Right. And I think the other thing too, is the ability to communicate with the public and, you know, non-scientists just as much as the, the other scientists that you want to collaborate with or whatever the better you can explain your science to someone who's not a scientist, the more you know it yourself. I've, you know, I've taught before um, through teaching as a teaching assistant, and the better I can explain something to someone, it makes it clear for myself. So there's really, in my opinion, no disadvantage to, you know, getting more involved in science communication. So yeah, no, I agree. Um, and so I just wanted to close with, um, I'm curious about what your next steps are in terms of this area of research. What are, you, what are your upcoming plans? Yeah, so I, like I mentioned, I'm kind of moving into new career goals. So um, I'm probably going to be leaving my postdoc within the next few months, but the research will continue, which makes me really excited. My advisor is planning on putting in grants. We'd like to get some of the work published before I head out. Um, and our real goal is to look to see how this, you know, how the estrogen receptor is affecting HER2 in this triple positive breast cancer to try to make better treatments and more effective treatments for the patients who have tumors like this. Well, thank you so much. This has been so interesting. I've really appreciated um, your time and talking to us about your work. And um, I just I appreciate you uh, coming and speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great to chat with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.